All right, in this section, we're going to be dealing with covenant theology and eschatology. And let's open with a word of prayer as we begin this, this section. Let's pray. Gracious God, we, we thank you for your word. Now teach us by your spirit those wonderful things in the pages of Scripture, that we may understand the victory that you have ordained. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Of course, this class is dealing with, uh, with kingdom, church, and eschatology. And if we're going to talk about eschatology, we, we need to uh, define what it is. And basically, it's derived from two words, eschatos, meaning last things, and logi, meaning study of. So it's the study of last things. Hence, eschatology is the study of the doctrine of last things. <coughs> but it's not just those things dealing with the end of the world. But it encompasses the things that we're going to talk about, the overall eternal plan of God. Now there's a passage I want us to turn to, and that's Isaiah 46. Let's start with Isaiah 46 and see what it says. Verses 9 through 11. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. There are several things I want you to note there is God has decreed everything that comes to pass in human history. The wonderful thing about it here is it says the end has been determined from the, the beginning. That tells you... <clears throat> God has it all in control. That means every event in human history has already been determined. And it says, I will accomplish my good pleasure. Whatever God desires in history, that's what's going to happen. And so God is the planner. He is the sustainer of human history. It will fall out exactly how God has designed it. He has predestined everything to occur. Nothing can alter the ultimate plan of God. No human can thwart the plan of God. Now turn with me to Isaiah 14. Let's go back several chapters to Isaiah 14. And you'll see in verses 24 through 27. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely just as I have intended, so it has happened. And just as I have planned it, so it will stand to break Assyria in my, my land. And I will trample him on my mountains. Then his yoke will be removed from them and his burden removed from their shoulder. This is the plan devised against the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out against all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has planned. And who can frustrate it? And as for his stretched out hand... Who can turn it back? Now you want some great passages. I'm giving you some great passages on predestination and on sovereignty of God. But turn over to the book of Daniel, to Daniel chapter 4. In Daniel chapter 4, beginning at verse 34 and 35. 
But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. No one can ward off his hand or say to him, What hast thou done? Now just very briefly there, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, was a very prideful, arrogant man, as you'll see earlier in Daniel 4. And as he was looking out over Babylon, he says, Look at the great city I have built by my power and my hand. And he didn't get it out of his mouth when God says, excuse me, I'm going to teach you a lesson. And he says, you're going to crawl around on the, on the earth for a period of years and you will be a madman. And it says all of this took place and that it did happen like that to the great king Nebuchadnezzar. And he, it says he came to his senses, finally. And when he came to his senses, he is the one. I just read you what Nebuchadnezzar said. Nebuchadnezzar learned the hard way of the sovereign God. But he did learn the lesson. And there's every reason to expect that, he, that we see Nebuchadnezzar in glory. This is one of the great testimonies uh, in Scripture. So, in this regard, the eschatos, the end, has already been determined by God. All things are proceeding as schedule, as predestined by God. Nothing can alter it. And keep in mind that God's sovereign decree does not nullify the proper understanding of secondary causes, meaning man's responsibility in the exercise of his will. The end does, does encompass the means. See, sometimes we think, well, if God has already predestined it, it doesn't matter what I do. That's a big mistake. The same God who has ordained the end is the same God who has ordained the means to that end. And he has worked that, and he uses it now. Oftentimes we don't understand how the means works in conjunction with the eternal decree, but God says it does. And so it does matter. As we shall see, God does use evil to accomplish his sovereign plan while he remains completely separate. Because God says, I am God, there is no darkness in God. 1 John 1, 5 says uh, unequivocally that he is light and there is no darkness in him at all. God's not the author of sin. But he does know how to use the actions of sinful men to accomplish his purpose. And yet maintain distance from it so he's not implicating. He says, well, John, that doesn't make sense. You know, and sometimes when people say to you, well, this whole idea of predestination and sovereignty and the idea of a relationship of the means to that, it just doesn't make sense. And I say to him, well, join the club. I said, I'm not here to think about that either. He said, but you know what? There is a passage in Isaiah 55 that says, from my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither... Uh, your ways, my ways, says the Lord. As high as the heavens are above the earth, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts, more than your thoughts. You'd, I hope you don't go kick your dog tonight because it didn't help you in your math problem this past week. 
Because your dog doesn't know how to do math. Be just because I don't understand how the means works in conjunction with the decree doesn't mean it's not true. The reason is I'm not God. God says when you learn that, it will be better for you. So years ago, I gave up and said, I'm just going to believe what Scripture says. And if it doesn't make sense, God may enlighten me uh, later on, but if he doesn't, that's okay. Turn to Acts 2 to give you an example. <clears throat> Acts 2, 22 and 23. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested you by God with miracles and wonders and signs with which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Predestined, but you nailed him to the cross. Turn over to Acts 4. Look at verses 27 and 28. For truly in this city they were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. There the peoples of Israel, Pontius Pilate, the Roman uh, governor in that area, the Gentiles, the peoples of Israel, they did whatever God's hand predestined to occur. And then turn to Mark chapter 14, and you'll find these interesting words. <clears throat> Mark 14, beginning in verse 18 through 21. Mark 14, verses 18 through 21. And they were reclining at the table and eating. Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, the one who is eating with me. They began to be grieved and to say to him, One by one, surely not I. And he said to them, It is the one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. What that is saying is Judas Iscariot was predestined to be the betrayer of the Savior of the world. But Jesus says, I will go as it is written of me. But woe to him who does this. And you know what? We have no indication that, that Judas Iscariot says, Oh God, why did you pick on me? Why was I picked to be the predestined one to betray you? Is that his attitude? No. When he betrays Jesus and he sees all the things that are happening to Jesus, he becomes remorseful, takes 30 pieces of silver that was, was the price for betraying Jesus, and he throws it back to Sanhedrin and says, hear the words, I have sinned. And they said, what is that to us? He sinned. Of course, the Bible says he was filled with the devil. Predestined to be the betrayer, but fully accountable for having done it. So I say all of this to you so that you understand that the doctrine of the last things, eschatology, is simply the unfolding of God's plan from start to finish. This means that in the various covenants that we're going to talk about now, though 
it is important in each of these covenants just how eschatology touches each of these covenants. And that's what we're going to do. It's not going to be a, a detailed study of covenant theology, but we're going to see where in each of the covenants of grace and the covenants of work, where it touches eschatology. Within American evangelical Trinity hymnal on the back of your pew, you probably do. If you turn to chapter 7 of the Westminster Confession. Now let's talk about a, a, a covenant. O. Palmer Robertson's given a definition that I like. And that is a covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. Meaning, the meaning of a covenant is, as I've said, it is a bond between two people. It is administered sovereignly. God is the one who dictates the terms of the covenant. And it binds, it's a bonding, it binds those two together. And it is a bond in blood, meaning that life and death are involved in the covenant. To make the covenant is to cut a covenant. Like Genesis 15, where the Abrahamic covenant, there is the cutting or of, of death of the animals in the uh, presenting of the covenant there in that passage. Now let me read to you what it says in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Follow along with me. Chapter 7. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although together reasonable creatures do owe obedience to Him as their Creator, yet they could never have fruition of Him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condensation, condensation on God's part, which He hath been pleased to express by way of a covenant. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity, upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. Man, by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, whereby he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto them those that are ordained unto life, his Holy Spirit, to make them willing and able to believe. This covenant of grace is frequently set forth in the scripture by the name of a testament in reference to the death of Jesus Christ, the testator, and to the everlasting inheritance with all things belonging to it, therein bequeathed. This covenant was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Paschal Lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people, the Jews, all four signifying Christ to come, which were for that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in the promised Messiah, by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation, and is called the Old Testament. Under the gospel, when Christ the substance was exhibited, 
The ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which though fewer in number and minister with more simplicity and less outward glory, yet in them it is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy to all the nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and it's called the New Testament. There are not, therefore, two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. Now, this is very important as we develop the nature of the church and the kingdom and why there are certain views that are very erroneous. And so what we see here, <clears throat> that this covenant is a bond in blood. It is administered sovereignly by God to us. And the death of the animal in that cutting process of the covenant was a pledge of loyalty to death. Whichever party violates the covenant, that party will die. As Hebrews 9.22 brings out, there is no forgiveness of sins apart from the shedding of blood. And if you turn over to uh, Romans 5, look at verses 9 and 10. Now let me mention something to you, just as an aside quickly. As I progress through this module, that there is a sequence, a logical sequence, that we have to understand certain things that are true in the Word of God, and we're going to build upon these things one after the other in order to understand what God has to say to us with reference to the millennium, uh, when is the coming of Christ? When is, uh, does Jesus sit on the throne of David? There are a lot of things that you have to understand beforehand. So that's what we're doing. We're building the basis for where we're going to proceed. Now, if you look at Romans 5, 9 and 10, it says, Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So finally, we see that there is no forgiveness without blood being shed in the covenant process. And it is sovereignly administered. Meaning that though there, though there are two parties to the covenant, Man has no choice. God says, I'm going to enter into a covenant with you. And here are the stipulations. It's not like man can say, well, excuse me, God, I, I don't, just don't want to do it. And God says, oh, I'm sorry, I, I apologize. God doesn't do it that way. God, the Almighty, says we're going to enter into a covenant, and here's, here's the basis for it, and here's the way it's going to be. That's why it's sovereignly administered. So... <clears throat> As we take a cursory look at these covenants now, do not think it has nothing to do with eschatology, because it really does. It has everything to do with eschatology. And by understanding the features of these covenants, you're going to have the foundation to understand the concept of the millennium. You're going to have a basis to understand why the people of God are the way they are and how God works with man. And so when you come down to it, 
Who are the people of God? And <clears throat> your answer to that question, who are God's people, will determine whether you're dispensationalists or you espouse covenant theology. You see, dispensationalists, uh, in one sense, they have their own view of the kingdom of God. We're going to take a look at that. And understanding these scriptures, uh, the covenants, we're going to see that it will keep you from serious eschatological errors. Understanding covenant theology will keep you from making big mistakes in your understanding of the, uh, of the end times. So as I go through these covenants, I'm going to show you how these covenants relate to the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, how these various covenants relate to the new covenant. So let's go through and talk about some of these covenants. Now the first covenant that was mentioned there was the covenant of works. And in this covenant of works, we saw that this was a covenant that God made with, with man, with Adam, as a covenant of works, meaning that life was promised to Adam and his seed, Upon this condition, perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience. That's what it says. By the way, the Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 19, section 1, adds the word perpetual to the covenant of works. And that's why we say, just think of three Ps. Perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience. That's what God demanded of Adam. So the covenant of works... Although it's denied by some today, for example, in the Federal Vision, they deny this. Nonetheless, <clears throat> understanding the covenant of works is vital for us to see that Jesus is the second Adam. Jesus, as the second Adam, is the mediator who faithfully accomplishes what Adam failed to do. That's why it's called the second Adam. Where Adam failed, Jesus will succeed. Whereas Adam sinned, Jesus never sinned. And he perfectly, Jesus perfectly, personally, and perpetually kept the law of God for all of those who are in union with him. Romans 5 is one of the best passages in the Bible to read that sometime. We won't go in, uh, well, we are going to read certain portions. Turn to Romans 5. And look at verses 17 through 21, and you'll see what I mean. Romans 5, beginning at verse 17 through 21. For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there will resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. And the law came in that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That as sin reigned in death, even so, grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we see there <clears throat> that Jesus is the second Adam. And the thing that you've got to understand is you and I were there with Adam. 
in the Garden of Eden. We were there with him, represented by him. Now, a lot of people have trouble with that and say, well, I just don't like this idea of representation. They don't, uh, whereas well, his sin then was uh, imputed to me because he was a sinner. Uh, we've become sinners by his federal headship, and we've inherited the sinful nature from him. That's not fair, they said. But when you start talking about God working in your life, when you understand how miserable a sinner that you are, as the Bible says you are in Romans 3, and when Romans 3 says that we're all under the law, and what does it mean to be under the law? Under the law, to keep it perfectly, every respect, or you're going to be under that curse, and if you don't abide by everything under it, you will die. And then when we find out that there's somebody who paid that price for us, and that you get that righteousness, not by works, but by faith in Christ, you say, well, that's wonderful. Now you like representation, don't you? And so we see here, uh, with regard to this, this covenant of works, several ideas. Again, Adam is the representative head of the human race that fails. Christ representatively head of his people. He's victorious. And only in Christ do we have personal, perfect, perpetual righteousness imputed to us. So understanding these doctrinal truths are essential in understanding how human history is moving, moving towards the eschatos, towards the end. Understanding this keeps us from the terrible errors of dispensationalism. Upon man's fall into sin, Adam, gracious, I mean God graciously, after his fall, entered into what we call the covenant of grace. And the major feature of that is that eternal life is offered to sinners through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So the essential elements of this covenant of grace now is that a faith, faith, is required in order to be saved. And this faith is given to all those individuals ordained to eternal life, that is, the elect whom God has determined, making them able and willing to believe. Now, if you read that closely in there, it is God who makes us willing and able. It's God who does that. Now, this covenant is administered in two testaments, the Old and the New Testament. And so just this is basically, this slide is a breakdown of what I just read in the confession. On one side you have the Old Testament with the emphasis where the confession says it is the time of the law. And then on, the other, uh, on this, that side you have promises and prophecies and types and shadows. And on the other side... Uh, you have the fact that it says that it's the time of the gospel. That's the wording of the confession now there. And so what we see here, <clears throat> the Old Testament is said to be the law. The New Testament is said to be the gospel. And so contrary to the teaching of some, you know, that theological aberration today known as the federal vision wants to eliminate that distinction. And in eliminating that distinction, you know what's happened? They have made it a work of salvation. That's the sad thing. When you eliminate that distinction, you end up making it a work of law. That's what's so interesting about that aberration. But under the administration of the Old Testament, 
It was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision as the sacrament, the paschal lamb. All of these foreshadowed Christ to come. That's why we got an arrow pointing towards the cross. All of those pointing to that which is ahead. The main point here then is the Old Testament was very Christological. Pointing to Christ. And note the phrase in the Westminster Confession in chapter 7, section 3, that in the Old Testament it says faith in the promised Messiah. The key to the old understanding the Old Testament administration is that it says in our confession, <clears throat> keeping with Scripture, they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation. Full remission of sins and eternal salvation. These points are vital because especially when you start talking about dispensationalism and its serious uh, theological errors, that point, they would disagree with this whole scenario. In the Westminster Confession, chapter 7, uh, section 6, it states that under the gospel, meaning under the New Testament, the substance to all the promises is revealed in Jesus Christ, who has come. That's why we got the arrow pointing backwards. So in the Old Testament, they looked to Christ yet to come, but they truly looked to him. Now us on the other side of the cross, we look back to the accomplished work of Jesus. But we're all, whether we're in the Old Testament or New Testament, we're all trusting in Jesus if we're in his kingdom. That's now that I cannot begin to describe to you, and we're going to develop that during the week. That is a major point that has unbelievable import in terms of eschatology. And I'm, I'm, I will show you why. And when you don't believe that, you will come up with all sorts of uh, unbelievable aberrations, and we're going to see some. So, the key is the final statement. There are not, therefore, two covenants of grace, differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. So even though the, even though the confession of faith uses the word dispensation, don't think that dispensationalism means the same. No, they're not the same. It, dispensation just simply means era. So, <clears throat> Old Testament saints were saved... By trusting in Jesus Christ to come. Through the sacrificial system of the Old Testament with its animal sacrifices in themselves, they, those sacrifices could not atone for sins. Nonetheless, because Hebrews says the blood of bulls and goats cannot atone for the sin. But when an elect Israelite whose heart was circumcised brought a sacrifice to the priests... He was identifying himself with the death of that animal that his sins deserved death. And in that way, but the animal sacrifice was only a type. The real substance was the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world that John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus coming. So the Old Testament saint was believing in the Messiah to come. And I will discuss this more when we get to the Abrahamic covenant. But in my, keep this in mind that Galatians 
Uh, we'll ex exegete that later on. But it says that the gospel was preached to Abraham. And also what Jesus said in John 8.56, that Abraham rejoiced to see my day and saw it and rejoiced. Years ago, <clears throat> uh, during this time of year, I was invited to a Christmas party down at George Tech. And there was a bunch of students gathered, and we were in there talking, and there was people of another theological persuasion, and they were talking about this law and the gospel. There's no indication ever, ever, of a gospel in the Old Testament. And I go, well, you know, I can't resist that kind of thing. So I said, really? I said, uh, could someone go get a Bible? And someone got the Bible and said, what do you think about Galatians 3.8 where it says the gospel was preached to Abraham? They just stared at that verse. Just stared at that verse. Now the gospel was preached to them. We'll develop that. Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced and saw my day. We'll see how Abraham saw his day. But for the time being, we're going to see here that the fact is that true of all Israelites, they all trusted in the Messiah to come if they were of the elect. In the New Testament, the saints rejoice in the Messiah who has come. So the important thing for us to see is this, that when we study a little bit about dispensationalism, which we will. For some, this is not their understanding. They would not say, you cannot say the Gospels in the Old Testament. They will flatly deny that. So let's talk about eschatology now in the various covenants constituting the overall covenant of grace. And uh, just briefly, this is a diagram that Brother Moorcraft did years ago for us. <clears throat> And you're going to see how uh, these are the various covenants that we have. And we're going to see that there's an expansion as uh, from one covenant to the other. There is a unity uh, to these covenants. We're going to see that this is a great difference in dispensationalism. Because in biblical theology, it sees, in covenant theology, it sees a unity to these covenants. Now there is a discontinuity as well, but the unity is a driving force in covenant theology. And each covenant <clears throat> builds upon the other. Unlike dispensationalism that teaches that God gives a, di a dispensation to man and man fails, so therefore God comes up with another administration. Now, I'm using their terms. But in biblical theology, the covenants all remain intact there is an expansion, there's a further development, and each of them build upon the other. And so what we see, the heart of the covenant of grace is reflected in the covenantal promises. For example, turn to Ephesians 2, 12 and 13. He says, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. There we see the covenants of promise. So the covenant of grace is comprised of various covenants of promise. And there you see you have the Adamic, you have the Noahic, uh, you have the Abrahamic, you have the Mosaic, you have the Davidic, and you have the new covenant. 
Um, the heart, again, is the fact, the theme of the Bible is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to show you that, let's turn just to, to a couple passages in the New Testament that demonstrates that. First of all, uh, turn to John 5.39. Jesus is speaking here. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these that bear witness of me. And then turn over to the gospel account according to Luke. Luke chapter 24. And take a look at verses 25 through 27 to begin with. Now, Jesus has been resurrected, and, uh, but after three days after his crucifixion, a lot of the disciples, they were disappointed, and they, they thought it was all over. You got two disciples, and they weren't the twelve here, but there were two of his uh, disciples, believers. And they're walking the road to Emmaus, and lo and behold, Jesus is going to come. The resurrected Jesus is going to be walking along with them and start talking with them. He's later going to reveal himself to them. But it's interesting what Jesus said to him. Uh, if you start at verse 24, it says, And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, oh, Notice what he says, O oh, foolish men, slow of heart, to believe in uh, all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory. In other words, you should have known better. You foolish men, slow of heart. It was always there. Why didn't you see it? Then look at verse 44. And now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus Christ is the theme throughout all scriptures. The unifying factor of the scriptures. Now let's talk about the Adamic covenant. That's one of the first covenants here. The Adamic covenant. We see this, uh, that in seed form, the first promise of redemption is seen there. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And so what we see here, this is sometimes called the Proto-Evangelium. The first promise of a Redeemer. And it is setting forth for us here, God says, in human history, there's going to be a war going on between two seeds. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman is Christ the Messiah. And the seed of the serpent is the devil and all those whom he has deceived. This holy war will culminate uh, in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. But you've got to understand something about the Adamic Covenant. It is the promise of a Redeemer, and it is a war that goes on between two parties. 
And we're going to see that plays a great part in eschatology. So the significant thing to note here is this, that the victor is already determined. And that the seed of the woman defeats the seed of the serpent in time, history, and on earth. We talked about earlier and I preached earlier in the first 40 minutes of the fact we're on the winning side. Right there at the dawn of human history, you have, even after the fall, the promise of a victory. The serpent bruises the woman's seed on the hill, but he will crush the head of the serpent. Now you want to know when that, that happened? Turn over to Hebrews chapter 2. What we're going to do, I'm going to take aspects of the, of the old covenant and I'm going to jump ahead and show you how the new covenant fulfills it. We are going to talk about the new covenant, but I always want to bring, bring it ahead and show you how it's fulfilled in the new covenant. So turn to Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. Since then the children share in the flesh and blood... He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Now there it says, he rendered powerless him who had the power of death. You know, some will talk about, there's an eschatological view <clears throat> where it talks about the devil. He's alive and well on planet Earth. Well, I'm here to tell you he's alive, but he ain't well. That is, if you think of crushed heads, well. Now, I think our, our doctor here would probably say, no, nah, that's, not, that's not too good. Oh, he's around and he has an influence. But his influence today is not the way it once was. And he is a defeated foe. Turn over to Colossians. Now, that, you know, that is helpful to know that. Satan is a defeated, he is a defeated foe. It's a, it's a mopping up exercise in war terms. Uh, but if you turn over to Colossians 2, look at verses 13 through 15. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having counseled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, which he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. See, the devil thought, he had won on the cross, and Jesus says, No, what you think is a victory was when I crushed your head, when I rendered you powerless. And so we see here that 1 John 5, if you turn over to 1 John, we'll take a look at these verses. 1 John 3 8 says, The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. 
Now let's be clear about who these seed lines are that are being referred to in Genesis 3. If you turn over to the book of Romans, Romans 16, verse 20. says, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's pretty victorious uh, terminology, isn't it? He will crush Satan under your feet. Turn over to Revelation chapter 12. Look at verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And then if you look at Revelation, while you're in Revelation, turn over to Revelation 20, verse 2. Well, let's look at verse 1 and 2. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. i got a whole section on the millennium in Revelation 20 in the exposition, so we're, I'm not going to get into much of it right now, but the point here is he is bound for this period of time by the one who has, uh, comes down, which we're going to see is none other than the Lord Jesus, and he will chain him, metaphorically speaking, he will bind him, and we're going to see uh, he will plunder his house. So the seed of the serpent is the unregenerate of mankind. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2 and look at verses 1 and 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that now is working in the sons of disobedience. You see there, those who are of the devil, he's the prince of the power of the air, and those who are dead in their sins are sons of him, they are sons of disobedience. Turn with me, and that idea of being the son of disobedience is brought out even more clearly over here in John 8. Look at John 8, verse 44. You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. Whatever he speaks, a lie. He speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so it is vital for us to see from the outset on the covenants of grace, there is a distinct pattern being developed here. A victory for the people of God, not defeat. Victory, not defeat. And so what we can say here, with reference to the Adamic covenant, is that there is, in that covenant then, there is the promise of the Messiah. 
There is the warring of the two seed lines, the, the line of the serpent and the line of Christ, the promise of victory in the woman's seed line. Now what I want to do right now, I, I think what we'll do, we're going to stop here for the evening. We're not even through yet. We'll resume the covenants of grace in the morning.